Okay, so welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. We have a very special guest, Mark Barnes, who is the founder of New Polity. So Mark, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I've been following your stuff ever since you've been writing on Patheos and then followed what you were doing with post-liberal thought, New Polity. So just for people who are unfamiliar, give us some background on yourself, but also this project that, uh, that you're working on. Yeah, well, um, I'm a raging egoist uh, and have been from a young age and fully convinced um, that other people should know what I'm thinking, which, while usually untrue, has definitely provided a, a particular life um, for me, namely writing. Sounds good. Um, I've been writing on Catholic culture, theology, philosophy, um, I think kind of as with most writing in this field, it's sort of loosely structured around being annoyed at um, uh, errors and and difficulties within um, our society, and then seeing in the church um, real solutions. And that's sort of been the through line, um, I suppose. If you could if you could put one in in my various writings, but right now it's really working with new polity, um, and. New Polity is, is a extended critique of liberalism as a philosophical principle, as a theology, as a um, heresy, as a uh, mode of culture. Um, it's a critique of liberalism as the antithesis of a Catholic society. Um, and because it has that kind of oh, somewhat broad uh, scope, it it is more than just me, it's many, many writers um, and thinkers um, are much more intelligent than myself trying to tackle the various aspect, aspects of the many tentacled beast that is the Leviathan, <laughs> liberalism. Um, so, you know, to, what, that, what that project means is, um, I guess the fundamental conviction is that the um, philosophy that we all live and breathe and eat um, is in fact a coordinated attempt to reduce the power of the Catholic Church in society and to prevent its establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Um, and that this is not just a philosophical project, but it's a historical project. This is a, um, you know, a generation after generation of elites who see it in their benefit to suppress the Catholic Church through the unquestioned imposition of liberalism on um, Christian people. So I'm curious to understand more about how like this project came to be first. Like I'm, I'm interested on an experiential level. Like how did you come to terms with the fact that liberalism is full of so many errors as you put it? Like what experiences in your own life kind of led you to this conclusion? And then I'm curious to know more about the like, I guess the intellectual scholarly level sure. yeah 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 you know i think there's there's uh, i think most catholics are possessed with the sense that the real world is much richer and deeper and more exciting and, and contains more miracles than for whatever reason um, a current social order gives us access to. And I know this is a vague way to begin, but it does seem like there's a wealth 
uh, a beauty that's sort of breaking in at the edges of everything. And, and this is um, a frustrating uh, experience. And most of the times this is an artistic experience, right? Where you are looking at a world of cars and corporate stores and you're asking yourself something like, is this the way it has to be? Isn't there something more? Isn't there something greater? Um, and so I think there's that very general, and, and the church really uh, encourages this in its, in its young people <laughs> because the whole world is supposed to shine forth with the glory of God, and yet we continuously build up a, a world in which uh, that seems less and less true um, and in which it, it requires more and more of a, of a poetic vision in order to see the glory of God shining through all the concrete, if that makes sense. Um, so if I could give a sort of aesthetic beginning, I would say that, that that has haunted me in a way that I think it haunts a lot of people, um, that, that there's much more to life. Um, and then in, in a discussion of liberalism, it just seems like there's a certain literalization of that, where there is a regulation of what can be talked about and what can be possible um, within a society through liberalism. So one of the obvious examples is that, you know, the church within liberalism is constrained to making um, arguments that are not based on any revelation. Um, so the world is very much cut short. So if you think about the arguments that the Catholic is constrained to make in terms of any kind of whether something like abortion or something like capitalism, um, the one thing that's assured is that God will not be brought up, that there will be no yeah. uh, divine justification for either the destruction of capitalism or the end of abortion. But in fact, um, we, the real world, it will be constrained to this material um, and, and finite existence um, if you're going to have any kind of uh, political significance. Which is to say, oh, yeah, you can talk about God as long as it doesn't matter, yeah. right? As long as you're just talking about your private feelings or, you know, something that's motivating you to look into um, other, other reasons that a oh, godless world could accept, then God is okay, I guess. Mm -hmm. So there's a real cultural constraint on the Christian, on the Catholic um, that does limit his world. You, you, be, you enter into this habit as a thinker of saying, okay, well, how do I get rid of God in this argument? And how do I get rid of the angels in that argument? And how do I shrink my world uh, in order to, to get the Catholic church to um, have any kind of political efficacy? How do I, how do I deny its claims um, in order to have some effect? And to me, this is just parallel with the, if you will, poetic shrinking of the world. Yeah. Mm, I'm curious to know what kind of environment did you grow up in? Like what was, what was life like as a kid? Oh, it was, it was wonderful. It was a kind, loving Catholic home. Okay. I have no great dramatic story. I mean, this is, okay. this is something where I have an envy of um, people with convergence stories because they have something to talk about. Whereas for me, it's, if I'm evidence of anything, it's just that the faith can be transmitted <laughs> uh yeah so i i grew up um moving around a lot my dad is in the army was in the army um 
and my parents always um, made a great effort to catechize us um, and to have us receiving the sacraments. Um, so it was a life in which the life of grace was never really distinct from um, any other part of life. Um, so, so I don't know if that gives me particular insight. In some ways, it clouds it clouds things for me because some things that just seem totally apparent to me, like it's just totally apparent to me that without regular forgiveness of sins, people go insane. <laughs> but that's not necessarily apparent. So I have I have certain biases in that regard. <laughs> okay, so it's interesting that for you, like this project is coming from an experience of what the answers could look like or what they should look like. Whereas for me, like I'm coming from the inverse. Like I was baptized in liberalism, if you will. Like I was living and breathing all of it. And I guess because like my entire life was is just like being immersed in this worldview. Like at a certain point I was suffocating. I was like, there has to be something else. Otherwise, like this is horrible. You know, because I don't know, like I grew up in a very kind of bourgeois suburban environment. I went to a public school where I guess like the main point of contention for me was the fact that like I intuited that there was more than just this very bland, neutral idea that like human nature is good. We just have to be nice to each other. We have to accept each other, be yourself, be a good person, the end. Um, because at first I was aware that like, I am not the best person. Like I have tendencies to like do stuff that's not good. So how do you explain that? Um, what about the fact that like, we have these desires for things that we can fulfill for ourselves. So like I intuited that there was this tension within the human condition within reality. And every time I ask, like, why is that? Like, why do I, why am I inclined to do stupid things? Like, why is there evil and suffering? People will be like, oh, we don't ask those questions because there's no answer and you're going to drive yourself insane. The answer is to be yourself. I was like, well, how am I supposed to be myself if part of who I am is wanting to ask questions? They're like, well, don't be yourself in that way. Like, you can be yourself the way we're telling you to. Um, and every, it was that, but it was also like all of these this tension that you intuit like it has to be psychology in a way like the solution is go to a therapist and like they're going to neutralize all of it for you so you can just live again a very nice comfortable bourgeois life and then die and then what so like it was being hit again like coming up against this wall constantly that like you can't ask questions there are no answers no one's going to explain this tension within the human condition that's when I was like, okay, I need to find something else. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, like, okay, in terms of faith, yeah, like I found that, but still I was looking for an intellectual explanation for the experience I had in our culture. And I don't think it was until I guess I found McIntyre and Charles Taylor that I found a plausible explanation of what was going on. And that opened the door to a bunch of other people. So I'm curious for you, like, what did you start reading that enabled you to really understand the nature of liberalism and its effect on our culture? Oh, man, that's a tough one, because it, it always seemed to me that I was reading things 
where the Catholic Church was being proposed as something that didn't fit the categories of the world. Mm -hmm. And at no point was that necessarily described as um, uh, its opposition to liberalism, you know, defined as the dominant philosophy of the Western world. Um, but that's what it was. I mean, that's what that was what was being discussed. So I'd be remiss not to not to point to Chesterton as the kind of um, and I think he is this for a lot of people, this kind of like splash of cold water where you get to wake up from the uh, ironclad categories of, of the world. So um, be able to say, well, neither capitalism nor socialism, but this thing from which both of these, these ideologies depart, um, neither, um, you know, a materialism nor a spiritualism, but, but the church's teaching on, on um, the unity of the two. Um, so definitely Chesterton. And then I, I guess what I would say is that when, when things got explicit in terms of like, um, not so much a, a general boosting of the church over and against the world, which is, I mean, it's been around for a while, <laughs> uh, but in terms of actual like naming liberalism as, um, as the disease and naming the grace that comes through the church as the cure, it was probably reading, um, um, D.L. Schindler's uh, Heart of the World, Center of the Church. Um, have you ever read that one? I have not. It's a great summary of um, communio theology um, and just a... I, I, it's funny because I really didn't know what I was reading when I picked it up. It was one of those bookstore moments like, mm -hmm. oh, this looks interesting. I'll check this out. Yeah. And then I, I just found myself irremediably changed. Um, because he makes the argument in there that there's nothing at all neutral or ab about a, um, a exclusion of theological argument mm -hmm. from the realm of public reason. Um, that this is in fact theology. To say that religious arguments do not apply is to have a particular religion to say that God can't enter into this conversation is to say something very particular about God and about the men having the conversation. Um, and it's such an obvious point, right? That you don't, you don't get to exclude um, the revelation of the scriptures or, um, or God without making claims about scripture and about God. Yeah. Um, but that had gone, I just had totally missed that. It was, it was just this total awakening where I'm like, oh, no, no, no. This is not a, a rational exclusion of scripture. This is a alternative scripture. This is not a, um, you know, enlightenment uh, attempt at getting to better agreement because we, are, we tend to disagree on, on theological matters. This is a theology <laughs> that's being imposed um, sort of a priori. So... So waking up to that and being like, yeah, no, I, I don't want to live in a world in which I have to neuter Catholicism and the and really um, theology. Um, and then again, and, and, and Schindler points to how this also then is a neutering of philosophy in the end of the day uh, in order to um, make arguments about how the world should be. 
So. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't find that kind of critique of secularism until I think it was Torture and Eucharist by Kavanaugh, who's yeah. been on here before. And then through him, I found Millbank and Radical Orthodoxy. And yeah. like, it was interesting finding them after having been forced to read post-structuralists like Foucault when I was at a certain Jesuit university. Um, but yeah, like they're using this, this kind of postmodern, post-structuralist model to critique secularism itself as a social construct, which when you think about it, like who are we to claim that there is no God? Who are we to claim that everything is morally neutral? Like we just made that up. Um, and I think like this then goes back to my childhood experiences of having this sense that no, everything isn't neutral. Like things are charged with meaning. Um, and that the claim to neutrality really is deceptive. And I think this is when, um, I'm thinking of Schindler's book. Is this, I don't know if it's older Schindler or younger Schindler, freedom from reality, the one that came out. Yeah, so like this claim to neutrality that comes from, you know, this liberal worldview is diabolical because it, it tells you one thing. It tells you we're neutral. It tells you everything's fine. Um, you can trust those who are in authority, but in reality, there's no basis to it. Um, so just being able to call that out and recognize that like it's, it just gave, it validated so much of, those things that I felt growing up. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think there is, you, you mentioned how this is a confirmation of experience of childhood. I think this is one of the ways in which in our day and age, we're called to imitate children in order to enter the kingdom. Because, you know, as a child, you really do live in a moral universe. Um, and it's taken as a sign of adulthood that you no longer do right that you exit the moral universe and you you know enter a universe that's solely a narrative without without an end um but it's also okay. boring if everything's neutral like why right. is it fun and but it's and it's also totally it's just obviously a lie right because what what we really live in is not a, a world of um, carefully kept free speech and rational debate and a sort of withdrawal from moral questions for the sake of social unity. We live in a hyper-moralistic age in which we are entirely arbitrarily, you know, declaring things to be devastatingly sinful um, and then seeming to forget about them the next, the next day. I mean, like, you just don't actually get the world that's promised. What you get is a world that's unhinged. And this is, of course, how going crazy works, right? Going crazy is um, the result of detaching yourself from um, the truth and saying that it's non-existent and then imagining that you're going to get some kind of um, ethereal floating through half-truths. But instead, what you really get is just any old thing, any old claim, any old opinion becomes yeah. um, a powerful weapon. So, yeah. Mm. So then on um, the other piece of this like neutrality thing is that we see that, you know, a lot of people claim to champion the oppressed, those who are the underdogs, um, really have this elitist interest behind what they're doing. And you focus a lot in your writings and in, you know, the, the videos, the podcasts that you do 
on the uprooting, uprooting from the particular, from the local, um, from nature in general. So I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on how this kind of elitist drive to, as much as it performs this, you know, good work yeah. towards those who are, you know, oppressed. Yeah. What is that? What do you see happening there? Well, gosh, it's, it's in some ways it's a big question, but but what helps clarify it for me is to 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 be very clear about the ends of a just society or like what what practical ends would um, a society that was good to the oppressed and was just what would they achieve because I think people are are kind of psychotic about this because they somehow think that the just society is one that like spiritually recognizes the validity of identities or something as if <laughs> as if like that would have satisfied anyone for most of history to have recognition of the validity of my identity. It's like, no, thanks, man. Um, no, I mean, like, what is actually, um, and, and I'm just thinking biblically here, is the distribution of property and the actual um, giving of power over to the weak and the oppressed. Um, this alone suffices for the just society. It's not, I mean, you have to have more than words. You have to have actions and so what what justice actually looks like is giving each his due and what that actually amounts to is each particular real person having the means that they need to live a life that flourishes towards an end that's understood within the community his community and ultimately within a, a sort of universal order um, the fulfillment, you know, in Catholic teaching, we talk about this as like the fulfillment of one's vocation. Um, justice is the distribution of power and property and land um, it, to achieve that end. Now, it seems to me that we are allowed to support uh, the oppressed or the weak or like the vaguely marginalized, whatever exactly that means. Um, only insofar as we're not talking about that end. Yeah. Only insofar as we're talking about a purely uh, spiritual and, and intangible uh, exercise where, where what we are doing is, I mean, obviously there's like the knee-jerk right-wing critique, which is that, well, we're, we're like virtue signaling or something. We're just trying to show how aware we are of oppression and then you know, say that we're on the side of uh, uh, the oppressed. Um, in order to really bolster our own power, um, because appearing righteous is a is a way of holding power. So, um, but no, I just think it's like it's like what the emphasis on um, on a kind of global sense of justice and a global sense of um, of fight against oppression what, what this does by uprooting it from any particular cause is it also uproots us from the responsibility of providing any genuine results yeah. you know so it's like we uh, maybe identity politics is, is one of the easiest places to see this right like identity politics takes as its sort of presumption that if you can gather a people who are unified on the basis not of place not of actual communion and certainly not of mutual holding of 
property or power, um, but on an identity, a marker that's known by a third party alone, um, then this is a sort of height of politics, of justice. But what seems particularly obvious to me is that, well, when you, um, when that becomes the work of justice, what you're not trying to do is have any um, real living instantiated communities in which, um, in which those, the oppressed are actually um, relieved and given um, property and power um, with which to live flourishing lives. Instead, um, it's just a matter of, it becomes increasingly a matter of, of uh, intangible goods like recognition, um, which I don't think ultimately satisfy. Yeah. Mm. And it, it makes me think like reading people like Milbank, like Kavanaugh, you also see that this, the drive behind this globalist agenda basically is to remove any fetters to creating this um this identity of consumer where like who you are is basically your capacity to give money or you know yeah. give money to these major corporations so like getting rid of gender identity um facilitates the, sure. that um you know transition into becoming this consumer identity right yeah because once you're uprooted so where do we receive who we are we, we receive it from our families from our friends we receive it from our vocation which is precisely our embeddedness within a society working for the common good that's, that's what our vocation is and that's how we answer the question who we are well i'm i'm this son i'm this daughter and i do this thing for the sake of these people i mean this is um this is what gives us great comfort i think um but the um, once you're stripped of all that, so once we're atomized consumers, we don't really have communities. Families are only um, sort of incidentally cobbled together for the sake of producing individual adults. Uh, and then they dissipate after the age of 18. Um, once that is the norm of society, what is to the elite class is then you can sell people things um, that claim to establish that same type of belonging, that same sense of belonging, um, the identity that they need um, to politically survive in this world can now be sold to them. This is why like identity, political identity groups are indistinguishable from the creation of um, uh, market, like groups to market to, um, because it's one in the same movement. You, by stripping people from um, sources of belonging, you can then sell them belonging as a product. And this is, I, I read Ivan Illich a lot on this, Illich, Illich, I don't say that aloud a lot. Uh, <laughs> but he he's, talks about the, the um, manufacturing of scarcity. It's like, well, here's, I mean, gender is a good example, one I've used before. It's like, well, historically, gender is something received as a gift. Um, it's received and it's dealt with and it's suffered as something that comes from without and that makes us belong um, within a society, whether we would like to belong in that way or not, um, which is why it's both wonderful and painful at the same time. But what you can do is if you, if you can deny that, if you deny that, that sexual difference is a gift and redefine it as an achievement of man, which has essentially been the, pro the project of postmodern queer theory, 
Um, and really, I would argue liberalism, period. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then you can sell gender as an achievement. And I mean this very practically. I mean, once, once it's really true that gender is a construct that you um, establish by growing your hair a certain length, then you can sell shampoo. Right? And, and I think it is as lame as that too. It's like once masculinity is a construct that you establish by repeating certain norms, then uh, we can sell you protein powder. Um, and it's tough because the people pointing this out, especially within the gender question, always want to be the radicals, right? Who yeah. stand back and say, look, this thing you think is so solid and secure is in fact just a series of repetitions that could be otherwise, you know, that's the whole postmodern thing. But what they don't see is that, that well, they're quite right, actually, um, about, but they're right about the wrong object. I mean, they are right that gender, for instance, has been commodified and, and turned into a product for sale. Yeah. Um, but what they're wrong about is that, that this is somehow um, the Christian project. And what they're really attacking is the uh, anti-Christian project. Um, and, then, and then they are modifying. They're, they're not questioning that gender is not a gift. That's taken as a presumption. What they're questioning is simply the different things that you can do uh, in order to have this man-made construct of gender. So what it becomes is for people like conservatives, it's like, well, conservatives think that gender is a, is a construct. Absolutely. It's just they think it's a construct that... Um, happens with that is built through having a particular anatomy and then um you know being muscular or something <laughs> and then queer yeah. theorists the ones who say no it's it can also be and then they name a bunch of other stuff as if that's the as if that's the fight but the, the fundamental problem is that um we no longer receive sexual difference as a gift from god we now craft it as an artifact of man yeah and i think like if we're thinking of queer theorists or gender theorists like Butler, like she's onto something about the performance of gender in, you know, late capitalist modern society. But the fact that she insists that, you know, metaphysics ontology is oppressive, it's a social construct, that's, it just sets us up for this elitist, super capitalist notion of the person. And it's like ironic to me that she doesn't realize what she's doing. I mean, I think she knows what yeah. she's doing, but it's but it's yeah. deceptive. Yeah, it's like queer theorists, all they're really doing is expanding the number of products you can sell to people. Yeah. It's like, uh, at first, all we were selling was like, you know, beauty products and, uh, you know, <laughs> now we're selling like, you know, surrogacy and we can sell, you know what I mean? Like, you, you where, how does capitalism work? Well, it works by creating markets where there aren't any. Yeah. And it's just very obvious to me that the only way to create a market where there isn't any is to get rid of gifts because wherever there's gifts, you can't, you don't have, you don't have that need. You don't have, it's being met by the gift. So you strip people of the gift of say a sexual identity. Um, and then it sets them off into um, a world of anxiety in which they have to do things in order to, be, to get what was once received. And that's the project that Butler is of course, a big proponent. I mean, she is definitely part of that capitalist work of turning gifts into products. Um, yeah. I don't know that she sees it. Maybe. <laughs> mm. I think the people who employ her see it and very much like it. The people yeah. who publish her. 
Well, and people get confused, right? Like, why, why, why are all the corporations now like LGBT friendly and and such? And it's like, I think that's maybe part of the reason why new polity is hopefully helpful. Is it saying like, look, if this surprises us, it's because um, it's because we haven't yet critiqued our society deeply enough. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course given a society in which um, we're trying to reduce all gifts to products to, in order to profit an elite, um, then yeah, of course this is going to happen. Yeah. And it makes me think of, um, have you read Augusto Del Noche's stuff? The Italian? Yeah. Well, what's translated. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he talks about the transition from the old left, to the new left. So the old left being more based on, you know, class politics, traditional Marxist kind of critiques shifting from this identitarian individualistic kind of idea of progress and you see how like the shift away from actual class struggle like actual poor people having valid legitimate needs shifting from the freedom to do what i want as an individual and like it makes me think then of um like people like cardinal sarah um what's her name, Obianu Jueke Ocha. So these like African Catholic writers who are basically calling out this, the elitism of Western liberalism that's saying like, you know, her letter to Melinda Gates that you are such a great humanitarian, you wanna come to Nigeria and you wanna spread birth control and abortion, but why? Because you wanna, basically you wanna eliminate African lives because they're an inconvenience to you, but also because the fact that the family is sacred for most African cultures is also a threat to these major corporations. Like that's when you start to see that not only is it deceptive, but it's actually doing damage to oppressed people, um, taking away what's due, as you said, to- Yeah, it it seems so obvious, but we just don't, we have yet to question that the kind of material, material luxury that the West provides We've yet to question that as a as a good. I mean, I mean we just yeah. say like if it provides it, then it must be good. So one of the places you see this is in the promotion of contraception in Africa. Um, there, there's a lot of studies <laughs> about the uh, the various barriers to contraception contraceptive access, right? Because what's assumed, of course, is that contraception is a good that it wants. And so the question yeah. is simply how does the river of contraception flow properly? And then one of the barriers, of course, to access are cultural barriers. And this gets discussed uh, among, the, among the elite and academics of, okay, well, what are these cultural barriers? And then the more you scratch it, the more you realize that, well, one of the cultural barriers is that people don't want it. And that one of the you know solutions to the culture, cultural barrier of people not wanting it is education, which is, of course, getting them to, to want it. And of course, Western expansion, expansion of capitalism has never gone by any other means but by disrupting places of contentment and peace um, in order to introduce needs in and through the destruction of communities that met those needs in other ways. So one of the, I was was reading a study, um, again, from the promoters of of contraception who are um, arguing that one of the problems with um, the access access to contraception in Africa is that um, Africans value family size because they have an agrarian um, that often they have an agrarian lifestyle. And they're talking about particular uh, African countries, obviously. Um, and that's so one of the solutions to this is greater urbanization. And you think about this, like it's just so blithely thrown into this boring study, 
you think about what is really being said here. It's like, there is a, there is a people created by God who have found that they love to have children because children are in fact useful and good to the and way and satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Essential level. Yeah. And that this is a problem that prevents them from namely, um, attaining goods that they are not actively pursuing, which for, you know, these Western educators is always like college education and, and more money. Cause that's, we just presume as mammon worshipers that the only value is of course, at the end of the day, more money. And so we actively disrupt these cultures and we do it in a way that just benefits us. And because who's the, who's the one that's gonna urbanize uh, agrarian societies? Well, it's always the capitalists. It, it, it always has been and always will be so like our very um outreach is just self-evidently trying to turn the entire world into a western liberal global state um and we do it through and, and i think that the academics are fooled at, at some level they just buy the premise that of course contraception is a good you know within my atomized urbanized existence so it must be a good elsewhere. Oh, these people don't want it. Well, we must atomize and urbanize their existence. Then, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but on that point about like this ideal of total atomization and sterilization, the people who advocate for their right to be atomized and alone without any source of, as you said, like the kind of economic resources of having a family, but also the existential meaning that it provides. Yeah. Why do you think people are so unaware of the fact that what they're advocating for is their own demise, their own being very miserable and empty? Because like for me, it's it's sad. Like I'm sad yeah. that people yeah. are advocating for this for themselves, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's blindness. I don't know. Don't you think that that part of our regime's work is to build up little worlds in which atomization is rewarded and individualism is rewarded and that people are just convinced not so much by the state of life but by the rewards i mean you if you're able to make a bunch of money for instance and have very little um that you have to give it to then you access a society that's deliberately created um, so that money is its, its predominant value and the marker of, of value. Mm -hmm. Like, it is just true that if I don't have any kids and I am sterile and I am healthy and I'm in my 20s and I am working in tech, <laughs> that I'll have a bunch of money and I will be able to be rewarded through that. Now, the empty, and I just think that it's, it's pretty much that simple. I mean, you could say, well, why don't they realize that these rewards are empty? These rewards are lives. It's like, well, I, I think that they, that there needs to be real conversion, but, but that shrinking of the world um, that's achieved within liberalism allows us to briefly live out these illusions where the kind of goods we can get from the, from liberalism um, do really make all of the all of the conformity seem worth it? Um, maybe it's a really long-winded way of saying people love money, and they're they're educated to love money, and then liberalism promises that they'll get it, and the only sacrifice is sacrifice of things like 
basically anything that would um, ultimately give you intergenerational power as opposed to individual um, power. You know, one thing I was thinking of was that uh, was in the history of, uh, or, or really just a descript descriptive history of eunuchs I've been reading. And in a lot of cultures, what was amazing about the way eunuchs lived is that by sterilizing themselves and thereby separating themselves from the good of family, um, they could be um, superbly committed to the cent whatever centralized power could use them, which is why they're always the eunuchs were always associated with the large administrative states as part of uh, their bureaucracies. So I'm thinking of like uh, China, for instance. Or Ming Dynasty, for instance, but also in Assyria and also just wherever it comes up within, you know, uh, um, Muslim caliphates and such as well. Um, but that that state of life was also one in which um, eunuchs could accrue and accrue a lot. I mean, there's a lot within these histories of eunuchs becoming fabulously wealthy when otherwise they would have had they not been sterilized usually by their parents or by their own choice they wouldn't have been able to manage to break into that world of administrative power in which you get all these um, privileges and rewards but what happens to a eunuch's wealth like what the the power that he accrues so his property his land his money whatever it is well upon his death since he's made that decisive separation um it would usually be the case that all the wealth would, would go back to the state yeah. And I think there's this, this, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a, maybe I'm being malicious if I say we're all eunuchs now, but I, but I think there's something oh, yeah. to it because we are allowed to get rewarded and to benefit and to accrue and to amass and to be selfish and to have, you know, cool things, but only in so far as we are content to live a life in which that never builds up some kind of rival power to our elite. Like, so we're convinced to just spend it on luxury items. We're convinced to not have intergenerational power that grows. We're convinced not to accrue land, but to live lavish lifestyles while renting everything we own. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the, the idea is that upon our death, we maybe you know, made a lot of bright lights, but ultimately don't affect the, the basic structures of power in society. Yeah. Um, and it makes me think of, did you read Chris Arnotti's book, Dignity? No, I did not. Yeah. So he basically was this Wall Street stockbroker who was, you know, like very progressive on the right side of history, blah, blah, blah. But at a certain point realized like everything he was living was empty and decided to go just like hang around the poorest low lives that he could find. So he started out in the Bronx and then just like traveled around the country to what he would call basically these back row communities as opposed to these front row college educated coastal elites. And he found that for these back row people, like sure, a lot of them lived in poverty, but they were rooted in family, local community, more often than not a faith community. And these people were generally happier. Um, and it just, it makes me think that like, again, what you're saying about the intergenerational loss here, it's also, again, this existential spiritual loss that yeah. um, without grounding, without roots in something that transcends you, 
that transcends time, like we're so vulnerable to um, to despair because then the smallest crack that shatters our worldview, our complacency, like we're screwed, like we don't have anything to fall back on. And this is what leads to like you know, nihilism and ultimately to suicide, unfortunately. But again, it's like the, it's scary to me that the people who are on the back row, people who are oppressed are being told that if you join the front row, you will be happy. Like if you go to college and get a job in STEM or whatever, like it's your ticket when really it's your ticket to being miserable, probably. Yeah, ultimately I think you just stretch out. I mean, it sounds like, like, uh, like old fashioned Catholic moralizing, but it's just true. Like, like the pleasures of the flesh that are available to us are a, a game of diminishing returns. Everyone knows this. Like, um, it's just that we think somehow, in our case, this time, the returns won't diminish. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if, um, I don't know, I just feel like we used to know this. Or maybe we, maybe we do know it. It's just like we're, it's just a, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a problem of the will. Because, I don't know, you think about movies, like, it's a wonderful life or something like the mm-hmm. like good old kitschy American movies. Like, just we'd love to, we'd love to again and again, point out that like, yeah, having money doesn't make you happy. Family makes you happy. No one would deny that, but, but, but everyone lives like they're denying that. It seems to me to be this cognitive dissonance because we yeah. can't submit it to our passions. But I think when that's presented in a moralistic way, which it is yeah. usually in the movies, especially yeah. old movies like that one, like it holds no weight because there's yeah. no real ontological proposal behind it that really captivates you. It's just like, oh yeah, sure, I know money will make me happy because it won't last. I shouldn't do that. But it's not that yeah. you shouldn't, it's that your being is something else. Like no one's telling you that this is who we are. It's just, oh, you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's why I sometimes like speaking in terms of power, like, because I think most people are attracted by the idea of gaining power, um, even if they don't quite know what that means. And unfortunately, power, of course, has this, well, I don't think it's accidental that it has a bad rap. I think that it's very fitting for a society in which actual power is amassed by very few for the amassment of power to have a bad rap if that makes sense but what i mean is just capacities like we are creatures with a nature and that nature comes with capacities and the use of those capacities is what fulfills us in the same sense in which the capacities of the tree are fulfilled and it's flourishing it's like that is what we mean when we talk about the amassment of power and and the uh, or rather the maximization of our powers Mm -hmm. so i always want to when i meet someone that's sort of obsessed with money it's not that I want to say like, oh, you should really think about being rooted in a particular community and serving others um, rather than just serving yourself because it's going to make you feel empty and hollow inside, all of which is true. But there's a positive way of saying it. It's like, well, look at the kind of being you are. You are a kind of being that has all of this, this capacity to do and to make. And that requires, and, and, and that is enabled those the the flourishing of those capacities is enabled by staying in one place by having solid relationships in which you can work with people towards a common good by um, being able to deny yourself pleasures by being able to fast by being able to um you know like you are dissipated in your powers in the pursuit of wealth And, and the only reason that 
that you think otherwise is because you're reducing your sense of power to your buying power, your purchase power, which is a very minimal, um, if we want to talk about the fullness of the human person, it's just a very minimal, minimal part of what you can do. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.